All right, so let's go ahead and get into the word this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, as we look at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. It's kind of exciting. Uh, you know, many times as we're going through the scripture, we just kind of stay true to staying in the text, uh, unless the Lord leads otherwise into a different passage. Uh, and I remember so often it would be Palm Sunday, you know, and I'd be in the book of Romans or something, and and uh, and then I'd see all the kids running out of the children's ministry with their palm fronds, you know, made out of popsicle sticks, you know, red popsicle sticks, by the way. And, uh, you know, and, and they've got their coloring picture of Jesus on a donkey. And I'm always like, oh, man, I would have loved to have spent some time talking about Jesus coming in and the triumphal entry. Uh, and it just happens that this week we are in between books. Uh, we're going to be going into the book of Galatians uh, the week after Easter Sunday. And so it works out well to have a a pause where we can come to the triumphal entry here in Luke 19. And we're going to be kind of hopping back and forth between the synoptic gospels and seeing the similarities uh, in their accounts of the triumphal entry. Why don't we go ahead and pray before we get into the text? Oh Lord, as we are um, kind of going back in time and reading the history of this incredible day where, where people recognized you for who you are uh, for a moment. And, and though it was incomplete, there was that, that time when you said, it's okay, it's time for the world to realize who I am. And, and so, Lord, as, as we in this room could be part of the uh, waving of the palm fronds, uh, Lord, we pray that we would not only be part of the excitement of Palm Sunday, but we'd also be a, a part of the, the, the suffering servant of Good Friday and the victorious risen Savior of the Resurrection Sunday. We pray that, God, you would help us to move beyond the present here and now and into what you were accomplishing 2,000 years ago and that you would shape us and change us accordingly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Palm Sunday is the day in the year where the church remembers Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. There's a whole lot of great insight in Palm Sunday, and there's also a lot of misunderstandings about Palm Sunday. The great insight is that Jesus really was coming into Jerusalem as the Messiah. He was coming in in victory, though it was humble victory. He was truly the son of David. He was the long-awaited ruler of Israel. He was the fulfillment of God's promises. That's the great insight, and that's the truth of Palm Sunday. It's wonderful. It's good to get wrapped up and it's good to, woo, it's good to get the kids little palm fronds and wave them around and celebrate that Jesus is the son of David. But the misunderstanding that is so great was that Jesus would enter Jerusalem by mighty works, that he would come in on a great white charger, rearing up and galloping down the Via Della Rosa in power to knock Pontius Pilate off any sort of throne, and to set his kingdom up there and now over the nation of Israel. That was a misunderstanding, though it was exactly what the Israelites wanted. 
For those of us who have had a Palm Sunday experience, rejoicing in who Jesus is and who we want Jesus to be for us, many of us have yet to enter into the suffering that Jesus went through. As Paul says, I want to partake of the sufferings of Christ and know those sufferings intimately that I might also know his resurrection intimately. We have never died to self. Oh, I love Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. The man upstairs, the good man, the Jane man. But you know what? I don't really want Rory to die. I don't really want to be crucified with Christ in the Spirit. I don't really want to be buried with Christ through baptism into death, even though it would mean that I would also raise up out of the waters of baptism into his resurrection power just as he did. No, 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 I don't want any of that. Don't talk to me about repentance of sin and turning from my old ways and living a new life in Christ. I just want those warm, feely goosebumps on the back of my necks, kittens and rainbows and butterflies, some like Americana Jesus that, you know, I have painted on a Sunday school wall in my childhood. That's what I want. But Jesus calls us to carry our cross just as he did. If anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross. He must count the cost if he wants to be my disciple. The similar gospels focus on Jesus' coming out of Bethany and And I wanted to have it for you today, but in getting all these different things ready, I wasn't able to throw it up on on the slides for you. But it's a wonderful thing to go to Israel and to go up onto the northeast part of the Mount of Olives and to be in Bethany and to realize that this is where the donkey was. And Jesus sat on it. And this is where the parade started. And when you go down the very path that Jesus went down, you can imagine the shouts and the cries and the hosannas and the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and the garments being cast down on the ground as the Savior, the Messiah, comes down the the road in, in great majesty. I'll be posting things this week. Don't worry. I've got videos of me walking down it. And there is a little bit of chatter about planning an Israel trip in the uh, not-so-distant future where we would walk down this road and have the Bible turn into virtual reality Bible. But you go to Bethany, and you walk down the road, and you go across the Mount of Olives through the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be in about five days' time praying and sweating great drops of blood, and you walk across the brook Kidron, where the blood from the bulls and goats used to flow down the temple mount and fill up the brook. You cross the brook Kidron and you stare up at the temple mount and you see the temple walls and the eastern gate that Jesus would have ridden through. And you can imagine the temple uh, being in view just above the walls as Jesus goes in with great pomp to walk into the temple. It's a wonderful 
view. It's wonderful to put yourself there. John's gospel puts the cameras of the story on the walls of Jerusalem where people are already in Jerusalem and as they leave the city from worship, they head towards Bethany and they see the crowds coming back towards Jerusalem with the man on the donkey calling himself Messiah. And so those folks who just left Jerusalem turn back around and walk back as part of this incredible celebration. The perspectives of the gospel narratives vary with different camera camera angles. But every one of the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tells us about how Jesus' actions were actually direct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And in his arrival and manner of arrival, prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus reveals to us, through his coming into Jerusalem, his true identity as Messiah. Though it was not the Messiah that they hoped for. He was lowly this day. Sitting on a donkey. Nay, or should I say, the foal of a donkey. Coming in humility. As a servant, not as the warrior, coming in from the rigors of war, doing battle on his steed. Instead, he arrives on a donkey, and it says it was with tears in his eyes as he wept over Jerusalem. Luke wants us to know at the beginning of his gospel, as a physician, he did as much as he could to write things down in a historical narrative so that we could know exactly what took place. And so we're going to go to Luke's gospel as our foundation text today, and we'll hop from Mark and Matthew and John as well. But it says in Luke 19.28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going toward Jerusalem. You know what's special about this going toward Jerusalem is that from about chapter 9 of Luke, 10 chapters back, the time had come for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And it says in Luke chapter 9 that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The language is that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He had a mission that he was on and he had to get there. And he would tell the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. We've been there before with each other, but this time we're going and we're going to stay there for a little while. This time we're going and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed by his friends. He's going to be delivered up. He's going to be scourged, mocked, and crucified. And he will die, dot, 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 wait for it. But he will not stay dead. He will rise from the dead. And the disciples, when they heard that, it went right over their heads. So much so that when the time finally came, they didn't think that Jesus was actually going to die. And so much so that when Jesus rose from the dead and was standing in front of them, just as he said he would, they didn't believe that it was actually happening. Who is this guy? Is it a ghost? I don't remember. I don't know who is. Oh, oh, wait a minute. He said this was going to happen. 
He set his face to Jerusalem because he had a purpose for going there. And verse 29 of Luke 19 says, And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, very similar little villages next door to each other, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, or as Mark's gospel says, as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. It's a green broke donkey foal. It's the worst kind. Only, come on. Cowboys in the room, you know what I'm talking about. All you city folk in here today. No one's ever ridden it. It's going to be a rodeo. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Mark 11, verse 3, it says, And immediately he will send it here. Or as Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5 says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, verse 32 of our text, those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. And you know what's interesting about the prophecies of the Lord is you see this phrase throughout the scriptures that when they are fulfilled, they are fulfilled just as the Lord has said. It was just as Jesus had said. And I like what happens in Matthew's gospel. When he sends them out, Matthew says in 21.6, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. I posted that on Facebook today as I was reading through this account. Because you know what? This isn't just something for Matthew 21 to have written. This is something for we who are living in the 29th chapter of Acts, if you will. The mission of the church continues in 2016 Prineful. And what are disciples of Jesus supposed to be living like? They are to be living like followers of Jesus. It's to be no different now than it was then. Read the New Testament. You see no difference of what 2016 is to look like versus 33 to 36 to 90 AD. Disciples are to do what Jesus commands. And something that he has commanded us in one of his last words while he was still on the earth was that we are to go into all the world. For those disciples, it was go into the next village and get a donkey. So the disciples went and did as they were told. And for us today, we're told, don't go over to Mitchell and get a donkey. That's not what I'm telling you to do today. I'm telling you to go into all the world locally, regionally, and globally, and preach the gospel of the kingdom to every creature. Proclaim the good news to every nation. Baptize people. Make disciples. Teach them to follow, the commission says. Everything that I've commanded. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says, And you do not do the things I tell you. Don't call me Lord. Because that would imply that I'm your master. If you call Jesus your Lord today, then do as he commands. Turn from your sins. Believe in the gospel. 
Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God by the grace of God as you've had your sins washed away. And now live for him by the power of him. Do as he commands. What a great example is those who went out to get the, con- the donkey, donkey, just as Jesus had commanded them. Mark's gospel, which is a very quick-paced, action-packed book written to the Romans, says, so they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. There's a similar encounter with the owner of the upper room later on in the gospels. Verse 33, but as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? What do we say again? Jesus told them this was going to happen. They asked, and they said, the Lord has need of him. Oh yeah, we know who you're talking about. <laughs> the Lord. And they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Interesting that Matthew's account says that they brought the donkey and the colt. So there were two donkeys, and they laid their clothes on them. Both of the donkeys. You don't see that in the children's illustrated Bible, do you? Two donkeys. Who leads the full mama donkey, correct? They set Jesus on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down, as Mark's gospel says, leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. All right. So Israel's hoping that Messiah will come in as a warrior, setting up his throne. Surely he'll have some kind of stallion that he's riding on. I mean, come on. We can appreciate that, right? Prineville, we're like, woo, make it a good, make it a good stallion. I mean, it's got to it's gotta have some muscle tone, you know? It's got to prance really nice. It's got to be able to rear up on command. Sidestep, sidestep, backstep. You know, you got to be able to rope off of it, of course, especially if you're going to be the Messiah. And uh, you got to get those sheep in, basically. You know, so come on. You know, I'm excited for this. Come on into Jerusalem, Messiah. Oh, he's coming. All right, I've got my palm frond. Okay, he's going to come around the corner here. Woo, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And, 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 and there's a, a donkey with nobody on it leading a baby donkey that, uh, oh, this is just not exactly what I expected. But, I mean, we've seen his signs and wonders. I mean, don't overthink it. We'll overthink it on Friday when we call for his head on a platter and yell, crucify him. Let his blood be on our heads and our children. Right now, don't worry about that. We'll work it out. We'll have the PR crew tell Jesus next time we're out on a stallion. Donkey wasn't such a great idea. We'll work through that. We'll work through that. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting drama, isn't it? And as they went, many spread their clothes on the road. We see that the whole city was shouting this out. The whole Jerusalem was moved, Matthew 21 says. And as they were moved, they said, who is this? And so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city is stirred up. You know what stirs up a city, friends? The presence of Jesus in that city. And Jesus has placed himself in you as followers of Jesus. So go out there and shine like lights. And what will happen? The whole city will know it. We see that throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, on the Sabbath, 
almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Or in Acts 16, they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. Or the next chapter, Acts 17, when they did not find the disciples, they dragged Jason and some brothers into the city and they said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Followers of Jesus will change their city because the presence of Jesus is there. This has happened in countless cities. Recently, I was reading a story of W.P. Nicholson in the 1930s Belfast, Ireland. And how a man who worked on his dad's trading vessel was obedient to go out on kind of a street witnessing venture Felt like a total idiot with three of his friends. One of them was the doofus of the town. There's usually one of those on every missions trip. It's me usually. And as they're walking down the street, they've got a tambourine and they're chiming it like this. And they're preaching the gospel. And no one's listening and people are heckling them. And it's just horrible. And he's so embarrassed, WP is. And, and his, one of the girls from the Salvation Army that said, let's go street witnessing, says, you know what you guys need to do? Get on your knees right now and beg for the presence of the Lord to come upon you. And so what did WP do? He knelt down on the ground with his friends and prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit to make them effective in ministry that day. And as they stood back up, there was a change around them and people began to hear the gospel, got saved, and a revival broke across Belfast as people sought the presence of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could preach the gospel in power. It happened in the American colonies in the 1700s. It happened in Wall Street in the late 1800s. It's happened in Hawaii. It's happened through Billy Graham and his son. It's happened through Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel Jesus Movement. It happened this year as Greg Laurie preached the gospel at Harvest America. It happens in cities. As people live the gospel out and do what Jesus commands. Begg says, when our lives are stirred, we won't be talking about religion. We will be speaking about relationship with Jesus. When our lives are stirred, we won't be speaking about denominations, but discovery. When our lives are taken over by Christ, we will, know, we will long to share him with our loved ones and friends. And so the people in Jerusalem this day asked the questions, who is this? Who is this? And as people are around you, they'll begin to ask, who is this? And did you know that the way you answer that question is the most important answer you'll give for any question? Who is Jesus? You remember when Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi? as they're sitting by the wonderful waters of the, that come out of the fountains of the river in Tel Dan, the River Jordan. Beautiful, fountainy, streamy place. And he says, who do men say that I am? And a couple of the disciples said, oh, some say that you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Some say that you are John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Okay, okay, that's what men say that I am. But who do you say that I am? And the question is asked to you today in Prindle, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this? Would you have an answer to give? Peter's answer was, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's who you are. Oh, blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And we would pray today that the Father in heaven would reveal to you here today in this church who Jesus is. That he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That he came to not only come in in a triumphant entry, but to suffer and die to wash away your sins. And to rise again three days later for your victory and your vindication. A simple question, who is this? But an important question. And so as Jesus comes in, they hail him as king in the same way they did in 2 Kings 9. When Jehu came in, they shouted out, Jehu is king, blowing the trumpets and throwing their garments on the steps for Jehu. Now it's Jesu coming in, as the Nepalese call him. Jesu coming in on the back of a donkey. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. As John says, the next day a great multitude that came to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they remembered he rose Lazarus from the dead. We know this guy's something special. And so they went in verse 38, and they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quote from Psalm 118, 26. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew says that they shouted out, Hosanna to the son of David. Mark's, Mark's camera tells us that blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Matthew's camera continues, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. John's camera Blessed is the king of Israel. We're getting all of these different perspectives, camera angles in the triumphal entry. As they would shout out Hosanna, or in Hebrew, Hosiah, which means save now, rescue us now, be victorious now. As the psalm they are quoting says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. Hosanna. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Send now prosperity. It's the Hebrew word haslia. And it means force an entry for prosperity into our land. Cut through all of this mumbo jumbo of the Romans. Cross through it and proceed to victory. That's what they were praying as they shouted out, save now and send now power and victory. These cries were the earthly expectations of men's heart rather than the heavenly expectations, which are the true concerns of the children of God everywhere. One of my favorite books that I get a little obsessed about is Ben-Hur. You've got to read Ben-Hur. Come on. Will you do it for me? Will you do it for love? You've got to read Ben-Hur. And you've got to watch the movie this weekend, the old school one with Charlton Heston. Oh, it is such a powerful book. And when you start reading it, you, you don't realize what's going on until you're placed there in Israel in the times of Jesus and you're an outsider watching this guy healing people and raising people from the dead. And you get into the emotions of what people are seeing as they watch Jesus. And you get into the emotions of a man named Judah Ben-Hur, the son of Hur. 
As Judah Ben-Hur is a warrior, he is a glad, I mean, he knows, he's a gladiator, he was a Roman slave once, he knows what he's doing with a sword, and he sees Jesus, and he goes, man, this guy, he's going through Galilee, he's healing people, he's getting a following, he's feeding them, oh man, he is so powerful, oh my goodness, he's going to set up his kingdom any moment, so I got to get an army together, and Ben-Hur gets an army together, and, and uh, they're very good warriors. They've got guerrilla tactics and they're like Navy SEALs and they're going to wipe out the Romans. It's not even going to be a problem. They're going to be able to do it. I'm just waiting for, for that guy over there to give the battle cry and to hop on that charger. And then there's a man who's a, an icon in this story who challenges Judah Ben-Hur. Don't you see the humble nature and the servant nature of this guy that's doing all of this? Don't you see that he's not quite that triumphant leader persona? Don't, don't you see that? Yeah, why is that? I'm kind of ticked about that. I'm ready to go get those Romans. And, and this mentor says, I want to challenge you something. What if the kingdom of God isn't just about him establishing his kingdom right here, right now? over the Romans. But what if the kingdom of God is first and foremost to be established over the hearts of men and women all over the world? Chew on that for a moment. And you watch Judah Ben-Hur chew on that during this story. You got to read it. Got to get yourself a free Kindle edition on amazon.com. Got to rent the, got to, got to, got to get it. You got to. I'm a little obsessed. But that's exactly what was happening in the story here. Just waiting for him to just, he's going to do something. This is a Trojan horse, the Trojan donkey. He's coming in so that he can take over. But within five days time, the same people that are saying Hosanna are going to be saying crucify him, crucify him. Give us that murderer Barabbas and put that guy up on that cross and you know what let his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads what's special about the triumphal entry is that it's the only public demonstration Jesus ever orchestrated remember all the other accounts he'd say don't go tell people what I did don't do it don't tell anyone yet don't tell anyone it's not time yet it's not my time yet here it's time and that's what's special about Palm Sunday Jesus did this to fulfill prophecy. Did you know that the date for Palm Sunday was April 6th, 32 AD? If you study Daniel 9, you'll discover that this was a date prophesied by the prophet that would be the exact day that Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel. Can I give you just a teeny tiny Bible college class? Just teeny? It's got a slideshow. Okay, I just want to show you guys some incredible stuff that will rock your world and make you want to read your Bibles. All right, Josh, go ahead and go into that image slideshow if you can. Okay, so we've got what's called Daniel's 70 weeks, where in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So basically, Gabriel gives Daniel the exact time frame 
of, of when Jesus is going to come, when Israel's going to be set up as the country, and when sins are going to finally be atoned for. And it's going to be all within 70 weeks' time. Now, I know what you're thinking. 24 to 60, 80, hasn't 70 weeks already gone by? Well, I'll go ahead and control this part, uh, Josh. Um, well, we need, first of all, to understand the language, okay? The word week in Hebrew is heptad, and it does mean seven, much like our week. It's a unit of measurement like a dozen. But here we have, speaking of 70 weeks of seven years. And to understand that we're talking about seven years, not seven days in our week, we have to understand the rule of first mention. If you want to understand the meaning of a particular item, you go back to where it was first mentioned in scripture, and there you'll find the key. Where, well, where do we have the rule of first mention? In Genesis, when we read of Jacob's love for Rachel, it says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her, Justin. Know what you're thinking. Okay. Don't have a seven-year engagement. Just letting you know. Um, so the word there for seven years is heptad. It's the same word for week that we read in Daniel. Later on, Laban said, it must not be done. So in our country, to give the younger before the firstborn, fulfill her week, her seven years, and we will give you this one also for the service, which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as wife also. And so we see that week means seven. Okay, so if there are 70 weeks until Israel is set up as a nation once again, uh, sin has been dealt with on a final ultimate scale, Jesus comes in and he will be the king forever and ever. Uh, no worries, no problem. He's, it's it, totally done. He's the king of the world. You get to see him, you get to go visit his throne. How long will that be from this prophecy? Well, 70 weeks or 70 times 7 is 490 years. 70 weeks or 490 years are determined. And who's this speaking to? To Daniel's people, to Daniel's holy city. It's all about Israel here, all right? But then we have something else said. You need to know and understand, this is, I'm reading what Gabriel says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem again until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the sanctuary. So I'm hopping up in just a, in just a little bit. So he says, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is only 69 of the 70 weeks. How many years is that? 483 years. Okay. From the day that King Artaxerxes is Persia, told Nehemiah the cupbearer, go into Jerusalem, build the wall again, be a part of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, that was, um, let's just go to this. That was March 14th, 445 BC. So you need to know and understand from the going forth of the command from King Artaxerxes, go back to Jerusalem that's been tore down, rebuild the walls, March 14th, 445 BC. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be 
seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, or uh, 173,880 days on the Jewish calendar. You can lick your pencil and pencil it all out. It comes down to April 6th, 32 AD, which is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in his triumphal entry, just as the scriptures have prophesied, just as the Lord has said. Guys, if that doesn't just make you wiggle in your seat a little bit and get excited, then man, you need to like, man, come alive, would you? That was only 69 weeks, but Gabriel said there's going to be 70 weeks until this is all done. Well, he says over there on the left, March 14th, 445 BC, you're going to have 69 weeks or 173,880 days uh, until April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus will come in on a donkey. But the Gabriel angel also prophesies that right afterward, Messiah will be cut off. Five days later, April 11th, 32 AD, he will be cut off, but not for himself, Gabriel says. And then we have a problem. Within about 40 years, Israel is destroyed. Jerusalem is wiped out by by, uh, the emperor of Rome and by the general Titus Vespasian. The temple is destroyed, as Jesus will prophesy on on his triumphal entry, that not one stone will be left upon another. And there in the middle, there's an image of all the temple stones cast off the temple mount. You can go there today and see that. And it was that day on August 5th, 70 AD, that we believe that the time clock of God's plan for Israel was stopped because the nation of Israel was stopped. Now, the beautiful thing is, is that the people continued And for about 2,000 years, the people of Israel were dispersed, but they kept their lineage and their line. That doesn't happen. That is a miracle of God. And 1,878 years later, on May 14th, 1948, something incredible happened. Israel became a nation again. And it's believed in many of my friends and my peers that that was the date that the stopwatch of Bible prophecy was started back up again. And we have an Israel that can be part of God's plan to bring in Messiah and to set him up finally and ultimately and for Israel to be saved of her sins. And we are just waiting for that final seven year period called the 70th week that the angel Gabriel says in the middle of that week, The Antichrist, who has made a covenant with many, will turn on his covenant, demand to be worshipped in the rebuilt temple, and it's called, Jesus says, and Daniel say, the abomination of desolation. Now that's like eschatology, I know that that's a lot, but you guys just need to know that God has a plan, and he has it all figured out. And today as we celebrate the triumphal entry, Jesus coming in, we see that, that God had it figured out to the day. And as he came in on a donkey, all of the Jews should have said, we've done the math a thousand times. Today's the day. It's on my calendar. Here he comes. They forgot that Daniel also prophesied that Messiah would be cut off, but not for his own sins, for the sins of his people. They should have also known as the Jews that this was the Messiah because of the prophecy fulfilled from Zechariah 9.9 that Jesus would be coming in on a donkey, the colt, the foal, 
of a donkey. And so as we have the worship team come on up, there's excitement for us, just as there's great insight in the triumphal entry. And there's also great warning for us. You see, 41 of our text today, Luke 19 says, As Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. He saw the city and wept over it. And he said, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Today I come with terms of peace, Israel. Today I come for you to stop worshiping idols and worship your living God right in front of you. Today I come not to set up my earthly kingdom, but to set up my kingdom in your hearts. If you would only know that there are terms today for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And Jesus, the weeping prophet, as Jeremiah weeps over Israel, and he says, the days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. And level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Why don't we just go ahead and put our things aside. And we want to realize today that the main message of Palm Sunday as we move to prayer. Is that the king has come. The king has come. To his rebel subjects and he offered terms of peace while they were still lost and dead in their sins the terms of peace were simple lay down your arms especially the weapons of self-righteousness and fleshly confidence and come to me like a little child Receive my grace and receive my mercy. Accept your free pardon and swear allegiance to this new king in your life. And by his grace, he makes the same call to us today. The king is here. The king will return one day. And he will be on that charger and he will come to make war. And Israel will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn as one mourns for their only child. It will happen. You can take it to the bank. You can pencil it on your calendar. From the time that the son of perdition comes and makes a covenant, Seven years later, Jesus will come back. But if you reject him today, Jesus would weep over you. You reject his terms of peace. And just as Jerusalem went through a time of destruction because of rejection, you too will go through a time of destruction. You will be destroyed, cast into the lake of fire that burns and torments forever and ever. 
And praise God that today in his mercy, he's drawn you here to hear the terms of peace that you might become loyal subjects of the King of Kings. And right now, as we close in this song, on this Palm Sunday, why don't you surrender your will and your heart to him by faith? Why don't you humble yourself before him as king? Bow the knee of your heart and swear allegiance to him as Lord. As a disciple, doing the things that he calls you to do. Why don't we stand together and during this last song, if you just want to afresh today, just devote your allegiance to Jesus. Maybe for the first time today, you would stand and be numbered with the citizens of the kingdom of God. Part of a kingdom that is not yet here on earth fully, but is 100% able to be over the hearts of men and women. Let's offer him our allegiance in worship today as we close in this song.